I really have been thinking about that for two weeks since he said it to me. That in a sense, we come into this life with different sets of parents, some of them more helpful, some of them less helpful, different environmental circumstances, different physical circumstances. But by and large, without an instruction book, um, without enough of an instruction book, if we're fortunate, we come into families that try to provide us with guidelines and instruction books. Most of us did not get a good enough instruction book on relationship. We really didn't. We watched it and either saw comfortable relationships or uncomfortable relationships. Most of us did not learn how to resolve conflict. But to begin even to know that, all of you came here today to do something because you already learned that we are in this uh, and pretty much it's perhaps up to this generation. It is up to this generation and we have begun to write the instruction books for relationships. But having discovered that they're harder than you think. I said I'm um, in various circumstances having to live down having written a book called It's Easier Than You Think because uh, uh, that title has different uh, entendre, and one of them is that it's meant it it it. I hoped it meant uh, that it has something to do with how we intuit or how we meditate and not how we think. But and uh, even if I think about it's easier than we think, it is easier than we think to understand about the cause and the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. But it's not so hard and easy to change the heart so that we stop suffering. It's fairly easy to get it intellectually. It's pretty difficult to change ourselves. Uh, I uh, was teaching with a friend of mine a couple of years ago and Normally, teaching experiences are quite wonderful. I love to teach. Teaching with this particular person has always been a wonderful experience. And for one reason or another, things were not going very well. And uh, we decided on the second day uh, that we were going to think about writing a book called It's Harder Than You Think. <laughs> and then the next day, we said, uh, when it didn't get better, we said, uh, we'll write a book called uh, It's More Difficult Than You Can Imagine. <laughs> And uh, on the next day, we thought, well, we're going to write another book called Forget About It. <laughs> Which is really, I think, what the stages that people go through in relationship where we have a certain notion that it's going to be wonderful and that this is, in fact, the relationship that we've been looking for. And then we discover soon enough that everyone has a trait that we didn't quite notice before. I actually think, I actually think that nature, I, I believe, and I, I, I have certainly read about it, and you probably have too, in some of the, um, the, the new wonderful books that are coming out about bioevolution, the way in which physiologically we are geared to fall in love with somebody as a way probably initially of keeping the society and, and, and evolution going and genetics moving along, that 
we tend in the first flush of falling in love with someone, uh, especially blinded by the endorphins and, and other kinds of hormones that come up when we fall in love with somebody, we have a way of selective seeing and we don't see those other parts of that person that aren't quite what we were looking for. We tend to be seeing what we were looking for. We get so delighted to see those things. Oh, there are characteristics A, B, C, D, and E that I really like so much. There they are, all in that person. We don't see F, G, H, G, and K, those other things as well, because we're so excited about the things that we do see, that we are in a straightforward way zeroing in on that person. We are showing them our best cards so that when we meet people initially, we don't say, these are all my difficulties. I'm sure you'd like to know them up front. <laughs> we, we tell people what, we, we, you know, we deal from strength, really. and tell people what's wonderful about us. We fix ourselves up the most attractive that we can be. And pretty soon, we hope this will become a solid relationship. And then when it is, and the excitement of the initial, oh, I finally found it, settles down. It's kind of like the head clears, mind clears, and dust settles. It doesn't negate that A, B, C, D, and E are still there. But everything else that we hadn't noticed before is also there. How to hold that in a way that remembers what was really meaningful and exciting to us to begin with. When I see people um, in relationship uh, for therapy, which I used to do much more than I do now because I travel so much, when I was seeing people as a therapist, one of the initial things that I would ask them when we met, which was actually one of the criteria for whether I would work with them, whether I thought that their relationship was viable, was tell me about what it was that caused you to fall in love with so-and-so in the very beginning, when you first met them. I Actually, I'd say to people, when you first met each other, did you really fall in love with each other? Tell me the best part of that. And it's um, slightly less hopeful if, um, I'm trying to be careful lest this be anybody's situation here, if people were to say to me, you know, it was never that great, but, you know, we hung around with each other for a long time and, uh, you know, it seemed like there's nothing much else happening, so uh, that's not the best prognosis. You know? uh, sometimes that happens with people, you know. I am only the second, maybe the third in my whole lineage since Adam and Eve who has an intentional marriage. I mean, every, my, my, my great-grandparents certainly had arranged marriages. My grandparents chose, but within a limited sphere of who they could choose from. My parents chose in a very limited sphere of what was acceptable. I actually had a limited sphere of what would have been acceptable, even internalized. I didn't even think about it, but in the whole world of people, there was a, a, a subgroup from which I could choose. Uh, I think uh, that there's a certain way in which cultures, in which choices were made for people, were made. 
uh, the expectation that people had of their relationship was different than the expectation that we have now. People married for cultural reasons and familial reasons. And they 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 uh, cemented dynasties, you know, because the king of Portugal needed an alliance with Spain, or because these two farms in Austria were contiguous, and it was better for them to marry off their children so that they could farm together. There were reasons that overrode personal things like love or romance or sentiment. So that if I had asked my grandmother, for instance. Um, are you happy in your marriage? That would have been a very bizarre question for her. You know that she would not have known how to really process that. Her husband was a good man. He was decent. He went to work. He provided for her children and kept more or less the family going. The story in my family was actually they didn't have a lot in common in terms of. Um, the kinds of things that interested them to talk about, but they lived, they ran a good ship together, and they stayed together as long as he lived. And but it was a different expectation. We have a different expectation. So the formula, and this may be why we need to write the instruction book again now, so we have a different formula. We have an expectation from relationship that's different. And, that all of the above, that we should run a successful life enterprise and partnership, and for those people with children and progeny, that we should raise them. So for, in that point of view, uh, relationships have a, a certain continuing similarity to the ones in the past. We make a, a different demand on ours. In addition to romance, and this is the part that I would like to move into right aspiration as well as right understanding, in addition to romance, I think that we have the understanding, at least I do, that my relationship is one of those possibilities for personal growth for me. It would have been a vocabulary that my grandmother would not have understood at all. If we think about right understanding as understanding to begin with that it's difficult, that uh, any notion that we had that it would not, that close and intimate partnership would solve every problem, would be easy, um, is not true. That right understanding is that not only is that not true, but it's not our fault. It's just in the nature of, int of intimate relationship. Like when we say the Four Noble Truths and we say that right understanding is understanding that life is difficult, in fact that it's unsatisfactory and suffering by its very nature, it's not because we personally are doing it wrong and everybody else is doing it right. It's just by its nature, things keep changing, things keep shifting, you can't quite get comfortable. Life is eternally challenging. And the point of practice, when we are talking about practice, apart from relationship, is to transform our own hearts to be able to deal with the challenges so that we remain in a non-embittered relationship with life so that we can manifest ourselves as loving and compassionate I would rephrase that to say in relationships, those that are viable and workable, that our, to expect that they will be challenging, uh, not to do it as a, as a challenge. It doesn't seem very romantic to say I'm hooking up in a partnership with this person so that we will challenge each other to, to spiritual growth. I mean, it's going to happen anyway. 
I like to think we are, I'm making this partnership with this person because I love them and they love me. But to take with it the notion it will be challenging and I can either look at that challenge as a mistake, I got the wrong person, or as the gift of intimate relationship if we are both committed to the fact that we are not making a mistake by getting on each other's nerves. It's the nature of relationship to sometimes be irritable with each other and to then say, how can we learn from each other? I'll tell you one more story and then maybe we'll sit a little bit having done right understanding, right aspiration of how it happens um, in retreat and then how it can happen in life in a relationship. I taught a retreat uh, recently um, far from here, somewhere back east um, with 30 people um, all beginners in mindfulness practice so nobody had done a seven day silent practice period before and it's demanding seven days, no talking um, Spartan schedule, get up very early a lot of periods of sitting quite still, many of you have done uh, intensive practice um, the biggest challenge of it is not the Spartan regimen. The biggest challenge of it is sitting with your own mind day after day after day. I mean, you can adapt to the situation. You can sit in a chair. The food's fine. And stay indoors. The weather is okay. It's beautiful in New England in the fall. But the mind is always difficult because it makes stories and brings up all the discomforts of the past. Somehow, if you give it space... Uh, I think the metaphor that, uh, uh, one of the many metaphors that serves for me is that if you give the mind a little bit of space, it says, good, now I have a little time to work out everything that I didn't work out up to now. So you kind of get a parade of your life, of sort of unfinished business of the life parading by. Not for the not for the whole life of practice, by the way. There's a some time, I'm happy to tell you, if you're just beginning in practice, where the unfinished business of a life, first of all, it gets a little bit more finished. And second of all, it's not the most compelling part of practice. But certainly in the beginning, you can give it a little space, unfinished stories of my life parade by, and they're difficult for everybody. And many people manage it, especially with 30 other people to give them moral support, sit, walk, sit, walk. And it happened in this particular retreat, as it often does, that one person was visibly having more trouble than other people. You can tell a person is agitated. They come in late to the sittings. They leave early. They fidget more than usual. They make noise. They just fidget more than other people, especially in a quiet room, you can tell. And one particular person in this case, who was that particular more uncomfortable person, had brought with him recording devices, his microphones, and his recording tapes of the teachings, I guess, to take home with him afterwards. He's making a lot of noise with the recordings. He seemed to be continually unwrapping cassette boxes and <laughs> clicking and clacking and opening and closing and opening and closing his recording machine. And other people 
especially because they're a little bit irritable and raw, raw because they're dealing with their own stuff. For them, it's the last straw that this person is clicking and clacking and fussing with the tapes. So that in the second or third day of interviews, one person after another, and of course no one talks to anybody else, people would come into their interviews and say, you know, everything is fine, but I can't stand it that so-and-so is fooling with a tape recorder all the time. Everybody's personal irritation suddenly lands on this one person who's fooling with their tape recorder all the time. Couldn't you tell him not to do the tape recorder? Tell him not to take the tape recorder. Why did he bring the tape recorder? Not supposed to bring a tape recorder. Could you speak to him and tell him how annoying it is to everybody else? And you just kind of, you don't say anything about that. You talk about this person's practice. You notice that they said that. You talk about what else is happening. But you, obviously, you do something about it. But one, what I didn't do was deal with the tape recorder and this person, because that needed to be happening for that person, and it's just what needed to be happening. And at the end of the week, by the end of the week, what I discovered, day after day, one person after another would come in and say, you know, I've had a change of heart about so-and-so with the tape recorder. You know, I realize that he's really very tense, and he really needs this meditation practice. As a matter of fact, maybe it's good that he's recording because then when he goes home, he's going to have all this good dharma to take with him and he'll be able to listen to it afterwards. And I'm really happy that he's recording. And I watch people in the dining room on the first day and the second day, everybody's sitting as far as they could from him, kind of uh, the pariah, the difficult person. And then, you see, by the last day, People are actually moving over and sitting near to him, really sensing this person's really emotionally in a difficult place and probably puts off a lot of people in his life with his whole being, as well as his tape recorder. And what comes up in a person as they sit and watch their parade of stories is we begin to see that we're all in a lot of trouble and everybody's mind gives them a lot of pain. And when we feel our own pain is when we begin to have genuine empathy for other people and their distress. And then we take care of them more than being angry at them. We start out by being angry with them because we can barely hold our own pain. When our own pain is open in front of us and we see, you know, I can take a deep breath. And for this minute, at least, I'm all right. Real, genuine compassion comes. I don't think we can practice empathy in a vacuum. I don't think we can decide to be empathic, compassionate people just because we heard it's a good thing to do. I think we do it through the vehicle of feeling our own pain. It's very hard. I'd like to move that into now the realm of intimate relationships. If we could, in the moment that our partner has offended us or irritated us or hurt us or frightened us, hold a balance of knowing I struggle as well. This person's ineptitude in this moment is a reflection of their struggle more than something that I have to take personally. This fellow didn't bring his tape recorder to annoy everyone. It did, but it's just a fact of him. 
if we could look at people's behavior and hold it, not suggesting that I do this all the time, it is my practice, it's my hope in my relationship, that at least I'm moving towards the ability to say, I am taking this personally, sweetheart, but let's start again, because there's got to be a way that I can hear what you need to say without getting so frightened and angry about it that I can't really hear it. So that we'll have to figure out a way that you can tell me what you need to say so I can hear it without being frightened so that I'm not in an adversarial place with you and in fact we can talk to each other. So I think that's the place in which right understanding that it's not easy relationship and right aspiration which is really not only I aspire for my own end to greed, hatred and delusion but really to manifest that in the world, that we can have the biggest aspirations in our practice. I'm practicing on behalf of myself and on all beings, and even for the person I'm in relationship with. And that the, the, really the, the nature of our difficulty, the, the stuff of our difficulty when we have difficulty, is really grist for the mill for both of us to change. In the best of all possible worlds, who would be a better teacher for us than the person with whom we live with intimately? They see all of our stuff. Everybody else doesn't. We go out into the world, we can put it together and just present those pieces of us that really are wonderful for other people to see. To live with someone close enough for them to be able to say, if they could, sweetheart, in addition to all the wonderful things about you, I also see this and this and this, which when they manifest, cause me a lot of pain. We would have the best possible way in which to really see what's true about us. We don't have a good mirror for ourselves. People have spiritual teachers, especially in a traditional sense. Uh, certainly in Buddhism there are stories of teachers who are so blunt in their telling of people what they see. When I hear those stories, I think, oh dear, I'm certainly happy I never had one of those blunt teachers who... Um, but maybe it would have been good to have a blunt teacher. I have friends now and working my relationship up to a place um, where people can tell me, at least a few people, quite clearly, don't do that. Um, and that's not the best of you, Sylvia, and you're making a mistake. And I can hear them and still know that they love me. Those are my best relationships. It's very hard to do with your most intimate. Uh, i tell you that right up front because I'm in the same relationship with the same person for more than four decades, and we're still working on it, but we're getting better. So... Uh, I'm kind of uh, counting on living a long time. <laughs> a, because I have a ways to go, and I, I'm very uh, encouraged about the possibility. B, is I couldn't start on it again with somebody else. <laughs> and besides, I really like the one I have. I hope that's true for all of you, short or long, in the relationship that you're in. That you really like the person, you want it to work, that you really see it as the possibility for growth 
as well as just making it through. My grandmother just wanted to make it through, didn't have the notion of the possibility of growth. Not faulting her on that. It was another culture and another time. It was a, a really a survival culture. You know, she was a, an immigrant in the time that um, life itself, just to stay alive and afloat, was important. So she had a different expectation. We have a different expectation. But I think it's a valuable expectation because I think to the degree that we use our relationships to transform ourselves, it's another uh, dimension of practice. Uh, We'll sit a little bit, we'll move a little bit, and then we'll talk again. But then we'll talk about the six ways in which people practice, which are the other six parts of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right livelihood, right action, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, as really the tools through which we, with which we work, so that we say, okay, I have some understanding and I have tremendous aspiration, how am I going to do it? And say, okay, now here are the rules for action and speech and livelihood and effort. And we will add to it because we're Westerners in this culture at this time in history. Right relationship. We'll use intimate, personal, engaged relationship that makes that sort of commitment to each other. Maybe, in fact, it will be the Western addition to the uh, traditional Buddhist uh, relationship to one spiritual teacher, where you go to your teacher with the understanding that the teacher loves you and wants the best from you and is pulling you and also tells you. Actually, it wasn't quite so that I didn't have teachers who were blunt. I did. I forgot about that. I just thought of two. One in which I told my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, something about some way I was practicing, which I actually was quite pleased with. And he said, uh, don't do that. <laughs> I remember it. It's, it's 15 years ago. But I remember that you know, we have such a, a, a culture around saying, especially it, since I was then a therapist, around saying, uh, I wonder if you might want to consider... Uh, da, 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 da. We kind of talk around a point. I remember him saying, don't do that. That wasn't... Um, and I remember uh, at one point uh, practicing with uh, uh, Upandita, and I hadn't... Uh, worked so much with Asian teachers in that tradition before and uh, worked through an interpreter. And it was another time in which I thought my practice was really moving along. I was really proud of it. And I would go in every single day and give a very, I thought, clear, precise report of my experience. I would go through the interpreter and he'd say something and come back to the interpreter. And I assumed it was going to be encouraging praise. And for the most part, it was try harder. And uh, I thought I was trying really hard. And he'd say, practice with more diligence. And I thought I was killing myself, actually. But I, I felt very honored and pleased to be in that relationship. And I even thought to myself, maybe he doesn't get it, what the interpreter is saying. Maybe that's why he's saying that. Truly, if he understood how serious my practice is, he wouldn't say, try harder. But... 
I had such confidence in his desire for me to see clearly that I could hear what sounded like a rebuke or at least certainly not high praise as this is for my good. I tried harder. That's what I did. So I think that the, what, we, what I learned from that, what I hope to bring to our work together and to my work and my relationship, is that if we could so set up a context where we would have firm in our mind this person's intention is my benefit, then we could hear. Maybe we'll use that in the first of our talking exercises this afternoon, that we'll say to each other, Let's really clarify what our intention is with each other. You know, that'd be a good thing to do. Thinking about whether I, I want to do it now, not quite. I'd like to um, sit for fifteen minutes and just let that settle down. Otherwise, it gets to be too many words. That's all right for you. If you need to stand up for a minute before sitting back down, stand up and then sit back down. I'd like to invite you once again to uh, begin to think about um, dedicating this practice for uh, the benefit of all beings and for the benefit of your relationship and for the benefit of the being with whom you are in close relationship and came here today, for the benefit of yourself, because they're all actually the same. And to whatever degree that uh, idea gives you some pleasure and perhaps causes you to smile and discover yourself to be uh, smiling, then it will be a sign that that's the bell has rung for you to uh, open your eyes and uh, smile at uh, your person. And then uh, smile at some other people as well. Uh, What I'm thinking about is um, uh, in terms of the logistical decisions about what to talk about next is um, continuing to talk about the Eightfold Path as the structure through which we view right relationship and to talk particularly about those tools of uh, sila practice, right action, right livelihood and right speech because uh, pretty soon it'll be lunchtime. And uh, I think it'll be the right time for us to begin to uh, speak to each other in our couple relationships that we've come in. So we better talk about right speech before we do it. Um, it's extremely hard. I often think uh, if... Uh, I often tell people, actually, that uh, if I could, I, I think all the eightfold path is actually a onefold path, uh, because I think that every single aspect of the path 
is contained in every other articulation of the path um, because it takes a great deal of mindfulness and a great deal of concentration to be able to do right speech and a great deal of aspiration and a great deal of effort and a great deal of all the parts to do any particular part of them. So I think that they all fit into each other. It's um, more like a hologram than it is like a path or even a circle. Um, But if I had to choose one to say, okay, I'm going to see them all through the lens of this particular one, it would probably be right speech because uh, we talk so much and it is our way of making relationship with other people, communicating with other people. I thought about the fact that uh, I'd like to mention that even in monastic settings, in silent monastic settings, people have communication problems and they get on each other's nerves. In silent retreats, people get on each other's nerves. Um, Those of you who have done any amount of intensive practice will know, well, you remember my story of earlier of the man with the tape recorder. There's often a person who just rubs you wrong for one reason or another. You make up your mind during a retreat that this person is the sort of person that you don't like. It's called a Vipassana Vendetta, by the way. (laughs) Uh, You make up your mind that that person is a person you don't like, and then everything they do uh, corroborates your view. They come late, they bang the door, they eat too loud, they chomp too much, they take too much food on their plate. The attention is geared to see everything that corroborates that view. It might actually turn out later that they're a different kind of a person, but we make up our mind and then all our energy of aversion focuses on that person. Um, likewise, there's the other side of that. It's called the Vipassana romance. And uh, we fall in love with people because of the way they walk or the way they sit or the way they bow or the way they eat. Um, And people spend, including myself, lots of airtime imagining uh, what will be after the retreat when we meet that person and actually talk to them and sever our current relationships and make one together and go off together into the sunset. uh, then discover afterwards, and really with, with, with serious emotional affect, even people who know better uh, come and say, it's the most amazing thing. I've fallen in love with the person on the Zafu in front of me. I know them. You know, the, uh, I even know what they really are in real life, but I never quite appreciated how marvelous they are. And there's something about... When the mind is uh, focused and the attention is steady, there's high rapture in the body. And we often just fall in love with whoever walks by our line of sight. It's kind of if the moon is lined up in a certain astrological configuration, the next person who comes by. There's a piece of Eastern European folklore that says if you swallow a chicken heart whole, the next person that you meet is your intended for this lifetime. And it seems to have worked for a lot of people, and it's just because you have that intention or mindset. So a lot of times people, and by the way, sometimes people meet people on retreat and imagine a whole lifetime spent together with them and actually meet them afterwards, and it works out right, and they spend a whole lifetime with them. So it's not, or a piece of a lifetime that's significant. So it's not to say 
it never works. It often works that people see somebody, make up a whole story, and then meet them afterwards and talk with them and discover that it's not at all what you thought. Somehow when we start to talk to each other, we get into trouble. I remember seeing a... Uh, um, I, I remember a cartoon that I uh, saw on the Saturday Evening Post in 1945 or 50 or a long enough time ago when the Saturday Evening Post was still where you read cartoons. And um, there were two men, talking, neighbors, talking over a back fence. And one of them saying, uh, when Jenny and I first got married, we got along great. And then as we left the church, <laughs> I remember being really struck by that. There's not a lot of time lapses in between. So we have a certain view and we're on a course and we love this person and we're going to cement a relationship with that person and we get it all cemented. And the energy of can I cement this relationship has now been used up because it's a fait accompli, cemented relationship, phew. Then you really look at the whole person and say, uh-oh, look, I got a whole package around this person. So talk a little bit about right speech, right livelihood, and uh, right action, which are the three parts of the middle parts of the, of the path. Uh, when I first began my meditation practice, we didn't talk about them very much. People came together in the 70s because we were tremendously interested in mindfulness meditation. We wanted to sit quietly, wanted to see how, the, how consciousness operated, the nature of mind. And we didn't want to talk much about morality. It wasn't in, in the 60s and 70s. Virtue was not... Oh, I mean, virtue is a big word now, but uh, sila practice means morality practice, virtue practice. And it was a, an era in history when people were really testing the edges, the, the, the parameters of what had been the societal norms. And so everything was kind of up for questioning. And uh, uh, so what had been considered virtuous had to be rethought in terms of is this a societal constraint or is this a valuable personal constraint? Is this a societal constraint that the society has imposed for its own reasons without taking into consideration the needs of individuals? Or is this a constraint that um, also suits individual uh, growth and development as well? My friend uh, Joseph Goldstein, uh, who's also been very, one of my very important teachers, and said that the word restraint became for a while a difficult word to use because um, it ran against the zeitgeist. And uh, restraint in terms of dedication to clear seeing is a really important word. I mean, you can't think about having a practice without having a certain amount of diligence and cultivating patience and restraint and dedication and steadfastness. So there was a period of time when it was really important for us to uh, rethink and re-speak the virtue part, the morality part of the path. 
because there are, of course, in, in, in the Buddhist canon, as there are, is in any other religious canon, all kinds of restrictions on behavior in terms of this you can do and this you can't do. Um, I think it's really important to think, uh, I, I think this is the way that we've re-understood them, not so much as arbitrary rules that cultures and societies and uh, religious traditions make, but a recognition of the kinds of behaviors that um, are unskillful that come from unconscious motivation and the need to pay attention to them more than some edict that's an arbitrary edict so that um, the morality rules in Buddhism as they are in every other major spiritual tradition are not to be abusive and not to be exploitive. And they come down in, in, in the particular rules about don't hurt anybody and don't take what isn't given to you. Don't uh, be exploitive or abusive in your sexual expression. Don't be in the expression of your sexuality. Don't be exploitive or abusive in the way that you speak. And stay clear enough to know whether you're exploitive or abusive. I actually, when I, when I teach precepts here, um, what I often teach is I think there's one precept. And the, the one precept is keep your mind clear. Because I think when, when it is, then we catch ourselves about to be exploitive or abusive. It doesn't feel good, and we don't do it. One of the ways that I learned it myself particularly has to do with um, a dedication to right speech. I really learned about right speech um, after a, a retreat of some duration, some number of years ago. Because as you know, if you've done intensive practice, in a retreat, you don't talk. You talk to your teacher, but you don't talk to the folks around you. But commenting doesn't stop. Commenting goes on all the time. But it's, it's an internal comment. And it's interesting to get into the habits. It's very powerful, more than interesting, to get into the habit of making internal comments without having them come out of your mouth at the same time. Um, so all those posters about remember to get um, mind and gear before engaging mouth and in the, you know the kinds of... Um, posters that used to be able to buy or bumper stickers. You get in the habit of recycling a thought before you say it out your mouth. So when I'm away on retreat, you recycle the thoughts. And I came home from some long period of practice. And in the next day or so, too bad not longer, takes a little bit of a while to get back into the normal pace of thinking and talking, sort of stream of consciousness at the same time. And in some conversation with my husband, I think we were driving along in the car, and he asked me some question about something. And I told him, I got ready to tell him the answer. But there was kind of a micro moment before, as I framed the answer, before it came out my mouth. And I realized that the answer that I was about to give was about 80% of it was the answer to what he was asking. And 10% uh, was uh, some 
clever way to say it because I have fairly good verbal nuance and I like to say things well. Um, and 10% of it was a little bit of a get back for something that he had said to me. That if I could, because I have a good verbal nuance, I can manage to couch things in a way that's either a subtle put down or a subtle get back. or And uh, thinking, of course, and of course this is not true, not, not planning it consciously, but I think on some unconscious level, my resentment at what I imagined or felt was a hurt will now hit back in some way that isn't going to get seen. It gives me a way to surreptitiously get back without anybody knowing it. But of course everybody knows it. I know it be on some unconscious level because that's how I've chosen to do it. And the recipient of it knows it as well because it doesn't feel good on their part. Sometimes they don't even know why it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't feel good. Sometimes, even I don't know, I, I might do it, and this might be true for you. I see a lot of people shaking their heads. They don't even know that I'm doing it when I'm doing it, but I know it later. And I don't feel good about it. So I think about the, the guideline for uh, what is what I'm about to say really coming from a place of non-exploitive, non-abusive. And actually, what I think is that it's, it's a tremendous amount to expect of ourselves that our motivation will be 100% pure all the time. You know, I like to say things well, for instance. So if I'm thinking about something to say and I have a good way to say it and I think it'll make the point, it's all right to have part of my motivation to say it well. Um, it's all right with me. It's not so all right with me to have part of my motivation to be exploitive or to be abusive. If I know about it, I want to not do it. If I know about it in advance, I want to stop in advance and not do it. If I know about it after, I want to be able to apologize for it. If I know about it during, I want to be able to stop in the middle of doing it and say, whoops, you know, I'm not saying exactly what I mean. I'd like to, you know, could we roll back the camera uh, and start again? I did that. I, I needed to do that between yesterday and today where some very big misunderstanding happened for a period of four hours. And I said, listen, uh, or all during which time we were talking about it, I needed to say at the end, look, four hours ago we liked each other very much and understood each other. Could we agree to roll back the cameras four hours? Uh, where I went off track was here and here, and I'm really I'm genuinely sorry I hurt your feelings. What I heard you say, which hurt my feelings, was this, this, and the other. Let's start from there and do it again. I'm happy to say that that also works. It, uh, yeah, there's a lot of truth-telling that we have to talk about this afternoon. It's very hard to tell the truth. It's extremely hard. Uh, somebody said to me recently, growing up is one humiliation after another. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I think it's a difference between be, be, being um, humbled in the best kind of way and being humiliated, that somehow we can tell the truth about ourselves and, and be humbled about the fact that we're not completely realized beings.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.